1: Okay, that should be much better. Thank you. Yeah, also for me, that would be obnoxious.
0: Thanks yeah, for How time,
1: are you doing? I'm, oh, yeah, for sure.
0: Pretty good. I'm somewhere else than I normally am.
1: Oh, wow, that's a lot of books. Is that a personal library or?
0: I'm in, uh, I'm house sitting for a friend down in Portland, Oregon.
1: Oh, nice.
0: Have you always been in the land of Ohio?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I, I grew up in Cincinnati, and then I went to Steubenville for college. Then I went back to Cincinnati. I taught high school, and then oh. back in Steubenville.
0: <laughs> okay. So, you, did you get your master's uh, teaching certificate or?
1: No, I taught theology, so you don't have to go through all the hoop jumping, which was really nice. I didn't want to do that anyway. Um, I was originally planning on going to the Dominican House of Studies which is a school in Washington, D.C. Um, But then, uh, yeah, just as as things were kind of falling into place after graduation, I realized I wasn't really ready to just jump straight into like a master's going into Ph.D. program. So I decided to pull back and teach instead, figured that I would I would learn the things that I already knew better by speaking them out loud. Mm -hmm. That definitely did happen. But I'm also very glad not to be teaching high school anymore.
0: Oh, really? (laughs)
1: yeah
0: is there something I, very special about high high school theology
1: uh well I mean no I, I I mean I don't want to be doing it um uh it's just i I like the academic theology and you can only go so far with high schoolers it's really fun when they start to get it um, but up on, until that point it can be I don't know just for for myself I found it a little like frustrating at times
0: uh because of their attitudes or trying to fit the concepts into something that they could
1: understand. no 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 they had they had great attitudes i mean my my students were awesome like i really really loved my students a lot uh it just wasn't the right fit for me um yeah yeah like i like i wanted to be reading other things and i wanted to be going further but uh when you're teaching, you just have to be like focused primarily on the stuff that you're teaching the students. Yeah. And that wasn't the spot that I wanted to be at, you yeah. know?
0: Theology though. hmm
1: Yeah. I, thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in Catholic schools. Yeah. yeah.
0: It was, so, um, I don't, I'm not, um, I'm not aware of Catholic school. So what percentage of Catholic school is about theology? Is it like one out of every eight courses or something like that? Like...
1: Yeah. You always have a theology course every single year.
0: Okay. Mm
1: -hmm. Even from,
0: from kindergarten up, I guess you're doing Bible stories back then, but Uh and then they get deeper and more complex abstract. Mm
1: -hmm. Or at least they should. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, I went to Catholic school my entire life. So I, I started off with like the simple Bible stories and uh yeah if you depending on on who's teaching you can kind of stay in that space for a long time and i think if that's people's experience of catholic school and learning theology and it doesn't go beyond that then you just think well that's that's everything that theology has to offer and it's generally pretty simplistic and it's just a bunch of bible stories the end um i happened to go to a really great grade school that kind of pushed us a lot further so that's what got me i think first interested in theology because like I just knew well I knew I I found out pretty quickly that it was like deeply philosophical I didn't even know what philosophy was I was in fifth grade and uh, my teacher decided to teach our class about um, the idea of relativism um, and objective truth or subjective truth and I remember like basically going to a lecture and absolutely loving it as a (laughs) fifth grader and the rest of my classmates were bored out of their minds Hmm. but Mm -hmm. i thought it was awesome um so i think that was my first taste of philosophy theology and then yeah that's that's what i was trying to bring when i was teaching in the classroom
0: so when you discovered relativism did you find that you could just manipulate everybody to your heart's command (laughs) (laughs) that opened up to you
1: (laughs) no um i think uh i mean what i think what was significant for me was finding that it was inconsistent Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um so uh this
0: what do you mean inconsistent with itself is it like by definition relativism is inconsistency it's just pointing to the inconsistency and
1: Um, relativism as kind of a a philosophy of life or philosophy of religion really doesn't work a very simple way to boil it down. I think this is kind of like the general attitude that people have is like, well, you know, like you have your truth. I have my truth. Like, what's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. Um, So, you know, kind of like live and let live. But then if you start scratching at the surface a little bit more trying to dig a little bit deeper, well, what does that really mean? Then you kind of run into this situation where, like, there is no objective truth that you can access. There is, like, no, no, I, there is either no truth or there is no truth that you can access. Um, And so then you run into a weird thing because relativism is kind of an assertion about that. So you're making a claim, like, kind of an objective claim about an objective reality that you are claiming you can't get to. So it's like a self-contradiction.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, but it, so- it could be read as there's no total truth. There's no way that a human being has the capacity to inhabit or see be revealed yeah. the whole truth.
1: Yeah, totally. uh Yeah, I think, yeah, those are, those are two different things. Like there is no like – kind of, like, totalizing perspective from from a human being. I mean, we're just, like, intrinsically limited in anything. So, like, we don't, no individual has, like, a monopoly on, like, a vision. And that, that like could be system. construed
0: as an objective statement. that mm-hmm. human beings are not able to be completely objective. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you can begin there. Like, there is yeah. a, a kind of a relativism in the sense of the, Five Blind Men and the Elephant.
1: Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I know. Where,
0: where they're, I know. All, they're, they're all describing, they, they can only touch so much, and so they're all kind of describing the same theme, or
1: mm-hmm. thing,
0: but it's all based on their relative position to the thing.
1: Yeah, I think um, kind of a, a phrase that gets thrown around here is the idea of um, like things are are relative without being relativistic. So you can't go so far as to say that there is no reality out there that you can access or like accessing reality uh, is impossible because I would make your statement false because you are making an assertion about reality. Um, But that's not to say that any human being has a totalizing perspective of the world. Um, Yeah, because like with, with that image of the five blind men, like you're only coming from your angle, you can only touch so much see so much Mm
0: -hmm. and so two two things following on that why is theology or how does theology approach the truth and secondly how does catholic theology which assumes to have a total grasp on something or a full grasp on something
1: yeah i i mean i've been thinking about this uh, a lot like what's the what's the difference between the christian perspective and like um like totalizing philosophical systems like Hegelianism. Um, and I I think that is because written within Christianity is inherently a mystery. Um, like no human being can have a totalizing access, um, but the the total whole is contained within Christ, but he himself is a mystery that I can't contain in my entirety. And so the whole orientation of Christianity is basically trying to open yourself up to the m- mysterious reality of, of who Christ is. Um, and so I, I don't I don't think it has that same kind of uh, totalizing perspective. It's not trying to put everything into a box. So there's certain um, certainties that Catholicism has, like about the truth, um, like that jesus christ is the incarnate god that is a certainty that we have um like a historical fact that we believe um but that doesn't mean that because we have like some certain knowledge that therefore like i have a totalizing knowledge of everything does that Mm -hmm. make Mm -hmm. sense
0: Mm -hmm. the catholicism also has a uh assumption about reality too, that it is discoverable or
1: mm-hmm. uh, yeah. faith and
0: science are, aren't in contradiction or conflict so much in your faith.
1: No, no. And I think it's because they're both operating on the same base assumptions, um, which is that uh the world is knowable. Like I think no matter, no matter where you are, no matter what philosophical perspective or theological perspective you're coming from, you, I think it's really impossible to not move from a place of faith. Like you just have to trust that what my senses are relaying to me is something true about reality. Like you don't have an option. (laughs) Otherwise you can't really function uh, at all in the world. And certainly science doesn't work. And so both science and Christianity have that basic faith uh, in, in the world that I can know it. In the senses that I can trust them, um, so I, I really think that there's no avoiding that kind of basic faith.
0: Are they all. are they intertwined for you? Uh, I guess discoverability and mystery, or or faith and, and science, or yeah, yeah. I think are are so. they <laughs> the same kind of knowing, or are they kind of uh, complementary, or have a fruitful tension?
1: Yeah, I well, I think because they come from the same source. I mean, there is one, there is one reality. Like reality is, is a whole. It's a, it's a oneness. Um, So yeah, like if, if God is true uh, and if like the created reality is true, there's not going to be any contradiction in those things. And so there doesn't have to be a fear about uh, approaching science or that science is going to be contradictory. Mm-hmm.
0: to the faith Let's say something like evolution which kind of shocks our senses that we are somehow molded of the same pumice as the orangutan and and the tree and the lobster it's all kind of of a whole um it was kind of offensive to the human being um who's a supremacist and an egoist to think <laughs> that i you know why would god like not just create plot me out of nowhere how did i be formed how is there a continuum between the ape and christ even
1: yeah yeah i mean i think i think you see that pattern in in genesis uh in that original text um like you see kind of a a growing complexity of creation when you walk through the seven days um and it seems that what the author is trying to communicate is that uh like there there's kind of um, uh, the, the phrase thrown around in, in theological circles is a hierarchy of being like you start with the most kind of like basic things like time and space are created in the beginning. Mm. And then you have this stuff that fills it up and that stuff is becoming increasingly more complex, um, which seems to follow some like evolutionary trends um, becoming more, more complex. Um, but mm. then uh, when you get to man you have like he's being like raised in his complexity like from from the dirt the same stuff as the rest of creation and then meeting with spiritual reality uh in man heaven meets earth and that's i think the difference hmm. when it comes to man
0: hmm How's that known? Is that another mystery? And what's the function of mystery? Because both you and Mark mentioned that, and other people of your ilk, uh, and revelation. In, unless that's uh, carefully defined, it could just be, oh, whatever, whatever. Oh, we can't yeah. make sense <laughs> of it. Just it's like, a mystery.
1: Uh huh.
0: It's revelation.
1: Yeah, I I remember being frustrated with that as a child.
0: <laughs> I, like, <laughs> I want
1: to That's not an answer. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think um, mystery is, is kind of what you were getting at with, like, there's no way that any human person can have a totalizing vision. Um, I think a mystery is something that you can know, but you can never know in its entirety because it's inexhaustible. Like, that meaning okay. cannot be, like, explicated fully. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always going to be more and greater depths. And that's that's why the human person would be a mystery. I mean, there's certain, like, Certainties that I can have about you in this conversation, I can be really confident, but the the mystery of of who you are is like complex and deep, and I don't think that's exhaustible. Especially as as time is unfolding and as you yourself are unfolding in time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, I can't I can't put you in a like a totalizing box if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. The um, one problem with a lot of the ideologies uh, that one comes across uh, in the world is that they, insofar as they are totalizing, they strip people of the capacity to be humble. Mm -hmm. And then things that uh, would be uh, processed beneficially for the person are processed negatively. Uh, they become resentful, they become even more greedy for power um, because they don't have some sort of trust in the mystery or some yeah. sort of uh, boundary to to their own will and and some certain ideologies strip man of that boundary um, or trick him into thinking that boundary. Yeah
1: isn't there. oh exactly. I, I think I think in general, there is a a human trend towards totalizing because we want to be able to control everything. Hmm. Um, and so like you see that in philosophical trends, you see that in political trends. I mean, you can see that in the gender ideology that's happening now. Like I want to like kind of control my identity and, and who I am. Um, yeah, I think that's always a, a human tendency. And so you need a real check on that. And I, I do think in Christianity, you, you are given an actual like check from like your kind of totalizing grasp, like your movement to try to essentially be God, um, to see everything, to know everything, to plan everything according to your will, um, because you recognize that creation and your limits are given to you um, and that it's a gift. And I think that is gift and mystery go hand in hand um, because when my limits are uh, a gift, and it's also not something I can fully understand. Then I am forced into a position of humility to be able to receive that gift and kind of work with it and watch it unfold.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, be a, a steward of reality, or a tender and mm-hmm. a tender to reality.
1: Yeah, I, I like a, I like the image of of Adam in the beginning as a gardener, um, because I think that that really encapsulates the role that we're supposed to be having with reality. Like I, I'm not the one who's like creating how things function, um, but I'm paying attention to the reality as it's being given and then like helping to give it more shape. Like I I recognize the thing with its particular potentialities, its particular limits. um, And so I move things in the world to allow it to to flourish. I mean, that's, that is what a gardener does. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm-hmm. so are you working on something you and Mark uh, finished the first season of Politics Agenda. excellent mm-hmm. how many episodes was that 20, 80, oh, I don't
1: know 13 <laughs> <13? laughs> it was longer than I expected <laughs> it was pretty
0: long, it was very involved um, yeah. and yeah I, I think I've watched most all of it I'm finishing up I think the last episode not the live stream Q&A that you guys did but the one before that and there's a lot of really good parts to that but you got you got kind of attached to that project. How did you get into that project?
1: Yeah. Um so, And is that
0: a part of a bigger project that you're concerned with?
1: Um so I guess the, the project began with Mark's dissertation. Mark was working on a dissertation on gender.
0: Do you recall the title? Mm. No,
1: uh, Barnes on
0: gender. No, okay.
1: Probably, probably yeah. something just as exciting. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I knew that he was working on that, um, and so when I was reaching out to New Polity um, because I I offered to help for free, <laughs> and then uh, it turned into not for free, which is oh, nice. even better. Great, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I knew he was working on that, and I knew that he was um reading queer theory. Um, Judith Butler in particular. So I I was reading that on my own with some friends of mine because I just wanted to understand it. (laughs) Um, And then...
0: Was that your first foray foray into postmodern uh, thought through the gender lens? Or
1: uh, is that related to other philosophical
0: explorations that you were embarking
1: Um, on? I think uh, my introduction to postmodernism came from my senior year of college. Um, so kind of like, uh, Nietzsche onwards, um, I was in a great books program. So we were just kind of reading systematically important works, uh, throughout the centuries. And so that was really my first taste of it. Um, and then I think I also became even more interested in it when I started following, um, Jonathan Pejo in the symbolic world, um, cause he's definitely a, a postmodern thinker but an orthodox christian which was just an awesome combination so then i got really excited uh, hold
0: on hold on hold on we have to pause there because there are a couple of my followers who loathe postmodernism to no end and they can't oh. understand how i would possibly be postmodernist but i'm pretty sure i'm pretty postmodernist so how how is that not like the most deadliest uh, upending of everything that we can know and do as as human beings how is that fruitful
1: uh and does it need to be combined
0: I, <laughs> with something else like uh orthodoxy or creativity uh in order to
1: yeah i mean i i i think so i think postmodernism on its own just leads to despair so to kind of go back to um the the like kind of overly simplistic relativism view like there is no truth i mean that I think is a, a contradiction, but I think there's just a skeptical position, which is what postmodernism takes up that the access to like an objective real- reality is just really impossible at all. Um, and yeah, the, the overconfidence that we had from the enlightenment and our, our rationality just kind of come crashing down. Uh, what I find exciting about this is because it's, uh, it reveals, um, that totalizing systems don't work. Um, it reveals that you can't enter into rationality except through a kind of faith in something. So even for the postmodern who recognizes that I can't have a full access on reality, you just have to you have to you have to assume some things. Um, and I think that's really helpful and kind of breaking the enlightenment paradigm that we can just kind of think our way through anything and have mm-hmm. perfect rationality. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, without without something kind of grounding you, then I think that that can lead into total despair. Like I can't know things as they are. So all that's left in the world is power and for me to manipulate it. Um, But I think if you are Christian and you're taking postmodernism seriously, then you start to realize like even more uh, your dependence on God and your need to submit to the mystery.
0: (laughs) Hmm. And it's fun. Yeah. It's a tool. It's a toolkit of interpretation. And it it devolves into uh, a single interpretation, a power interpretation, a cynical interpretation, given that... Wielder of these tools or this pattern of interpretation has nothing else to stand on, has no connection to reality or faith in a connection to reality that might lead to a connection in rea- to reality at some point. Like a faith in God mm-hmm. is an assumption – But until you have the connection or communion with God, then it's still just a blank assumption. But you at least can carve out some sort of humility and uh, gratitude, maybe, for the gifts that you're given. And that then builds up to some sort of joy or non-cynicism in life. And so postmodernism, knowing that there's these narratives that are crashing around and bungling around can be approached mm-hmm. just like a garden like okay well mm-hmm. let's see what can be developed here let's see what has been developed here let's see what we can, can i can engage with and cultivate but if you don't have I, I think that if if you are too proudful or uh too in your head then you kind of get disconnected you don't even have that opening for the connection mm-hmm. to be fostered and then then it kind of goes into very cynical games so postmodern and postmodernism is as a stance is kind of value neutral it really does depend on the assumptions or that someone either starts with or comes to in practicing it
1: yeah yeah and the other thing that i like it about it too is that um it's kind of a, a return of narrative um and meaning like you can't actually encounter the world without like kind of imposing some kind of meaning on it uh and again like you can take a cynical turn like i am imposing meaning on the world therefore meaning is coming from me and there is no objective i i really don't like the word objective but i keep using it uh, hmm. but there is no meaning out in 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 the world and it's just kind of like a power move that i'm inflicting on the things out there mm-hmm. um or or kind of the uh, another flip would be realizing that Um, Like what it means to be human is to be an inherently narrative being, is to be within story, to be within meaning such that it's really impossible for me to escape it at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I find that really
0: exciting. Is that that one way to understand the difference between theology and philosophy, like a different uh, relation to narrative or interpreting? things according to a narrative framework because theology just seems more storied to me than philosophy even though philosophy does have a rich tradition of parables and etc metaphor
1: yeah um hmm. yeah I, I i kind of see it, it gets a little bit confusing for me to think about or or talk about because i just see them as overlapping so much
0: okay all right
1: um like i i I feel like you kind of do both simultaneously always but it's sometimes more one or the
0: other even Um, even uh secular of uh, like judith butler is still doing theology on some level or you know even an analytic uh philosopher
1: yeah i mean i i I think so um because Hmm. um Yeah. She's like a, she's asserting an anthropology. Um, and she's asserting like a narrative, a story, um, like kind of a myth of humanity, Mm -hmm. uh, if you will. And I mean, that's precisely what the Bible is doing. I just don't think that you can escape those narrative myths of our origin stories. Um, yeah. If you're, yeah, I just think it's impossible to escape. Um, and I think she recognizes that too, um, like that she can't escape like asserting a narrative, a kind of myth about the human person, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what that means, and hers is a very cynical one.
0: Um, oh, and and uh, lyrical too, if one was to gauge her writing style. Um, <laughs> or, worry, abundant, rich.
1: <laughs> so I, you,
0: you've always been in the Christian story, then.
1: Mhm. Yeah.
0: How did you know that you fit in it? Uh Some people don't. Some people have to rebel, maybe.
1: Yeah, I think that's a part of some people's stories. Um I I think for me, um I guess my 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 experience uh I've always I've always wanted to understand things and I've always wanted things to be practical. And so that's kind of the way that I approached faith when I was learning it. And I happened to have been in a situation where I was able to see both of those very, very young. Um, And I don't think everyone has that experience. Um, So as far as like understanding things like that fifth grade experience, talking about uh, relativism or really philosophy. I mean, it was like a fifth grade, like little lecture, like obviously it's not going to be that comprehensive like there's lots of holes that you could poke in it um but i realized that uh yeah that like logic and faith do in fact go hand in hand and if it doesn't that's a problem <laughs> hmm. um and then i think on the other hand uh i was looking for um yeah practicality like if if this thing is true, then it'll actually bear fruit in my life. And so it wasn't like, um, I didn't go through like a a specific like investigation. It was like, as I was working it out and as I was living it, I was just kind of like testing, 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 like, is this true? And I kept finding that uh, the more questions I was asking, like I was actually getting satisfying answers. Um, And then when I was, going to prayer, uh, that it was actually bearing fruit in my life. I was becoming a more peaceful person, a more charitable, charitable person, like the things that are supposed to be the fruit of prayer was happening to me. And so, you know, like as a young person, it's like, well, like this is working. Um, hmm. and then I think kind of in high school and college, you just kind of like shot off the, the deep end. I was like, Oh wow, this is actually really fascinating. Now I want to know everything.
0: <laughs> hmm. It's a big wheelhouse that catholic faith what you guys got uh you're going on like 2040 years something like that yeah (laughs) celebration you're always celebrating something
1: it's true today's the the feast of john the baptist so happy feast today okay cool yeah. I'll
0: go out and get some locusts from my local onion locust store.
1: Gross. Man, you I have to about? do that too.
0: That's what the WEF wants us to do. <laughs> Full circle. We'll eat yeah, I, and be happy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, Catholicism is kind of like uh, the door into Narnia. You're like, ah, oh, this is going to be like this simplistic thing with like your rules and this is like your like religion stuff and then you open up the wardrobe you walk in you're like oh my gosh like there's a whole world here and i will never be able to explore it all it's Mm going to take away too much time Mm -hmm. that's kind of the fruit of having a very very long tradition
0: (laughs) yeah yeah among uh one of several fruits of, of having, uh, being connected to such a long tradition. One thing that I, I grew up, uh, evangelical, uh, mm-hmm. Protestant Christian, there's a, like a wooden cross in front of the chapel, really no adornments every once in a while. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a stained glass window with some sort of nice geometric pattern, but there was no real deep icona iconography, um, or even, um, a very deep sense of visual art itself. So, when I you know started to you know, visit Europe and then go into these cathedrals and stuff, and you're I, I was confronted by well, one the tradition and the 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 feeling of these spaces that are just linked to thousands of years of devotion. I could just feel that in the mm-hmm. room. But one thing that that um, moved me was Mary. These these sculptures and these paintings of Mary and her relationship to Christ and trying to figure out like, why is Mary here? What is going on with that? And I, I was a few years ago, I was in France and kind of just wandering around and I found a, um, monkery, what are they called? Um, where the monks monastery go. monastery yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I stayed there for a few days and it turned out that there was this guy from Kentucky there. Um, cool. so he would, uh, chat with me and we'd go and walk around and he'd show me the, the rabbits that they eat and <laughs> other things. And I asked, well, why Mary? What, why is this, why is this icon here? why is it keeps on i keep on finding it in inside of these buildings that you guys have built and that you live in and he said that i can't remember his exact answer but it was something about the reflection of Christ's pain and the mother is even a higher uh, realization of that pain or like the the witnessing stance of Mary to the divine gift in the in the son and then the, the divine sacrifice and, and and Jesus's crucifixion is it's almost stronger or more potent in some way, but I don't know. It's a, it's a mystery, but the question is, or or the topic is like the, the place for the feminine and the female and Catholicism is not hidden. It's, it's out front. No. <laughs> it's, it's front and is actually center. And if you really look at it, you start to see that actually every time you go into a cathedral, you're inside of a woman and the church is kind of like this, um, I don't know how and we need to go, but like you can kind of see that the female represents huge things and very specific things. Mm-hmm. It's all in there. So I'm just wondering, um, about that and your relationship to that and how that has grown in you. And yeah. Formed you.
1: Um, yeah, I, I think, um, when it comes to Mary, uh, I think it it makes sense to understand the church as being the bride of Christ, um, and Mary is kind of an, an image of the church in a way. Like she's like the uh, like the perfect woman, uh, the one who is perfectly receptive to God, and not in a way that like Mary I don't know like wasn't human. Um, But she was completely receptive to God to the point of like totally receiving God into herself and burying God into the world. And that is basically the role of the church and kind of the role that what we're supposed to be before God is um, this image of total receptivity to God. So I guess to kind of bring it full circle to some of the other things that we were talking about is... um, yeah to like humble yourself before the mystery before your own limits um before uh god and to receive him so that you can like bear fruit and bear life uh, and bring that to the world and to other people um yeah and i think that the the feminine is a particularly potent symbol of that this kind of um almost like be the highest symbol. It's kind of the the spiritual orientation of the church is essentially to be Mary. So then it makes sense that Mary is just everywhere, constantly reminding you like this is this is your position before God.
0: it's it's very profound. And, and there's certain mysteries that you can't really uh, convince anybody of through argument. Um, either mm-hmm. they speak to you or they resonate with you or they don't. And I guess that's either my humility speaking or my aesthetic sense. Of, <laughs> you know, there's no arguing taste, Yeah. but I, I in, in investigating feminism, cause I've been investigating, investigating gender. And if you're going to investigate gender, you're going to invest masculinity and femininity. Um, mm-hmm and I'm more oriented towards investigating femininity and the feminine and the female and the woman because I'm a man. And so it's kind of just more interesting to me to go in that direction. Um, Plus there's something I, I I, I dip into the manosphere every once in a while and stuff, but there's just something (laughs) like kind of gay with a J E uh, J H E Y kind of thing about it. It's like, I don't know. We're getting a little too bro-y. Um, (laughs) so i need more work in that area um, but I, I notice in in american feminism or in feminism in general but american feminism and and there are many feminisms and there's you know different strains of it and there's even uh, catholic catholic uh, forms of feminists that mm-hmm. that are are coming into being erica Bakuloki and um and uh, Abigail Favelle. there's a lot of Catholic women specifically who are actually pointing to something that that mm-hmm. is uh, assuming or subsuming feminist critique and then bringing it back to the church, bringing it back to a complementary relationship yeah. to the um, male and female. But anyway, so there's American feminists and they're kind of liberal and mm-hmm. they don't like it when you say that – to be feminine is to be receptive. Like that is, that's negative power. That's negative power. And it might be negative power, but I don't think it's any less powerful than negative power. So I'm just wondering, like, have you uh, been persuaded to, to think of uh, the woman as being uh, put down by being shown as passive or receptive? Or how do you square that with the critique of uh, maybe women being taken advantage of by being taught this stuff, you know, being put into a place.
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely grappled with that. I think more um, in high school and, and going into college, more more intellectually, honestly, I just wanted to understand Um I went to an all girls school. (laughs) Um, So Cincinnati is kind of an odd place. There's a ton of Catholic schools, just it's overflowing. Ton of all boys schools, ton of all girls schools. Hmm. Um, So I was kind of, uh, because of the all girls school environment, I was kind of in like a feminist environment um the thing that we would say over and over and over again was we are empowered young women <laughs> i'm sick of that phrase <laughs> i'm done <laughs> do
0: you know what it means or what it meant
1: i mean for us it was just like girl power hooray we need something for marketing yeah, yeah. maybe that's just my cynicism speaking <laughs>
0: Well, you know, it's that the, the I, I the visual representation would be uh, sorry to go Marvel, but the uh, in Avengers Endgame, there was this gratuitous scene of all of a sudden all the female characters in the entire series just kind of appeared on screen and they did this girl power, like this oh. thirty-second slow motion <laughs> girl power like goddess march. It was just like totally egregious. Yeah, oh no.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I think I experienced that kind of vibe in general from my school and i i it kind of felt like people were compensating for something and that's kind of how i felt with feminism like if you really have to assert that like women are powerful women are powerful women are powerful it's like well if we are we shouldn't have to convince anyone you know like it just should just be evident and I, i shouldn't have to like I guess, kind of like a fight for it. And I think um, it's because uh, feminism is being colored by masculinity. Like, it's this idea that the only kind of power that's a real power is the kind that can be seen, that's external, or that is violent. Quantitative, well, Yeah. Mm-hmm. And men, like, do uh, have a monopoly on that. Like, I mean, men tend to be stronger. Uh, men like tend to be, I don't know, more like active politically and just interested in doing the things that are associated with those kinds of power. Um, and so, yeah. So this turn then of saying, well, like, well, women are also powerful. Therefore, it means that they have to express power in the exact same way that men do. That's kind of what I was picking up on, and I was getting frustrated.
0: Oh, so you had an intuitive that. sense that you that it, there was something off.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, it just didn't really make sense to me. Uh and I was interested in um uh kind of what the church was saying about like the feminine spirit. Um so I don't know if you've heard of something called theology of the body. I don't okay. know. Okay. Uh new stuff then. So um Pope John Paul, John Paul II. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh, developed this in his Wednesday audiences. I think it was originally a text that he wrote and then he just presented little portions of it week by week um, and kind of really drawing out. Um, really, I think what theology of the body was about was the the symbolism or language of the body. Um, so this idea that the human person is infused with meaning from the beginning, including our bodies. Um, And so it's not just that I'm limited by my body, but I have these limits so that I can speak something. I mean, you can think of language, like if I want to actually communicate things and I have to submit myself to the rules of grammar and it's in submitting myself to those limits and those rules of grammar that I can actually express truth and move beyond just the rules into just this free poetic creativity uh, and so that was kind of his vision of the human person and of the body and what it meant to be man and woman. Um, and so uh yeah, the limits of our bodies is so that we can communicate essentially eternal truths, like you communicate something about God um about our our life with god and I mean you see um kind of in scripture, uh again, going back to that idea of the church being the bride of Christ. You see Paul picking up on this idea that uh, the way that human beings were created to relate to one another was intentional so that we could learn what it means to relate to God. I mean, it's not a one-to-one analogy. You certainly don't want to go there, but everything about creation is supposed to speak and help to teach us how to approach God. Hmm. So, by being myself, essentially... And submitting to the limits of my own body, and uh, learning to be like creative from within that, to like really, um, yeah, to to be myself would be to be feminine, and so that's kind of the angle that I was starting to look at things because I was hmm. I was in my school, um, which kind of had like this like empowered young woman like feminist attitude. And I was also learning about theology on my, of the body on my own time, and just picking up a very different attitude about what it meant to be a woman. And I was trying to reconcile those two things, and especially when I got into college, I and studying philosophy, then then it just kind of deepened that reflection a lot. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And and so I, I could see how one could misinterpret the uh, prompt to uh, let's just say that. That you're Pope, dude. It's like uh, <laughs> women be feminine. That's how you get close to God. And then I could see that it would be, and or ma- men be masculine, women be feminine. That especially what we're witnessing now with so-called gender ideologies that people are making mm-hmm. an I- idol out of the feminine and an idol out of the masculine. Mm-hmm. How do you know that you're just to be feminine? What how do you, how what is your relationship to femininity then?
1: um relationship to femininity from what perspective
0: if if this is your uh, your vehicle to uh, manifest a relationship to god or to discover how to relate to god how do you relate yourself to femininity in uh, in such a way that you're not taking it too seriously or too lightly um, how do you how do you recognize it how do you even see this is the problem with gender how do we even see what it is i don't even think we can oh. really see it it's something in the corner of our eye it's something in the yeah when somebody <laughs> will turn their wrist or something like that it's very it's very light so
1: yeah i'm i'm grateful that you phrased it like that because that that became my big question like because i like i am a woman therefore i'm feminine <laughs> and what is that mean it can get really confusing because in general men and women can do the exact same things yeah. but the way that we do them is different like it's it's almost like a tone or a musical quality to it like you can't really put your finger on it and like there's certain things that are exclusive to women and there are certain things that are exclusive to men um yeah but for the most part there's so much overlap that was that was that was my 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 question. Um and I I have been thinking um a lot about symbolism and I think it makes sense that John Paul II focuses on the language of the body because language is essentially symbolism. Um, I like that idea because it keeps you from moving to a totalizing sphere. Like, a symbol or language has limits. It really does express something, but it's not like that meaning is exhaustible. Um, So, like, there is meaning to woman. There is kind of a a limit on her, um, but it's not like you can, like, put uh, what femininity is entirely in a box. Like, I just don't think that you can totally grasp it or, like... I don't know, like draw a circle around the whole of it and like, all right, this is it.
0: (laughs) Or even codify it if you wanted to go that far. Totalize it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I don't think uh, maybe a poet would do. I don't think there's any philosopher that's been crazy enough to try and And one thing actually one funny thing about philosophers male philosophers they'll they'll figure out the they'll figure out the world and then their wife will cheat on them and they won't know how to deal <laughs> with it right there was a, something that popped up with heidegger It's like trying to like oh. deal with his wife cheating on him he's like ah. <laughs> you know so yeah. there's something about a uh, woman that breaks men men's brains like they can't really define it. And the woman yep. has so much power over them <laughs> at the same time that they kind of try to even cut her out in certain respects in their mm-hmm. uh, philosophies i just see that
1: yeah i i think that's true uh and that was kind of one of the things i wanted to i was hoping to talk about today because i i know um mark mentioned when he was on the podcast that i want to be a nun <laughs> i want to join a cloister you do. um yeah
0: what, what uh, do you mean want
1: uh it hasn't happened yet <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to go visit a cloister, uh, in September for a month, um, and just go try it out. So maybe, maybe I should back it up. Cause I, I'm, I know that a lot of people don't know like, kind of how this works. Um, like being a nun. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so in the church, there's a lot of different religious orders. Like, I think when people think like nun or monk, you just think of like, oh, like the, there's just like the one thing and they wear like a habit and it's probably brown. Yeah. Um, or they, they either
0: make wine or beer.
1: Yeah. <laughs> really good wine and beer too. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different kinds um, and there's a major distinction um, between the different kinds. There's the actives and there's the contemplatives. And it's, um, you can kind of think of it as like the kind of job that they do. Um, so the active, uh, like friars, uh, the active sisters, they're going to be the ones kind of like Mother Teresa. They're out on the streets or doing things like you see them, essentially. Um, so they're serving the poor or maybe the order that you join, their job is teaching and That's what they do. Or maybe they work in nursing homes or maybe you do like all of the things. It depends on the order that you join, um, what kind of like job or apostolate vocation you're being called to, uh, the way that you're serving other people and serving the church. Um, So those are the the actives. Um, The contemplatives uh, are cloistered um, typically. So it means that they take a vow of stability. So the community that they enter into, that space, like the actual living place, they don't leave. Um, so you're kind Ever. of like behind. Or they get uh, moved around, yeah. right? You you can. Um, it it depends on how strict the order is. Like there's the kind of like hierarchies within the contemplatives. Um, well. I'm sure like people have heard of the monks who take vows of silence. I feel like everyone is aware that there's those extremes that exist uh so those orders are out there um most contemplatives i don't think take vows of silence um but yeah you you make a vow to like that place being your home essentially um and your vocation or job is basically just to seek god in prayer that's it um and I think that can be very confusing for people <laughs> um, because it's not uh, its not really like a useful thing. Like the active sisters, the mother's Teresa's, they make sense. So like they're going out and serving the people, but then here's these people who leave the world. They enter into the cloister. They stay behind these walls. No one else is able to enter in from the outside. They don't leave. And what they do is just pray. They just seek God. Um, and I was aware that there was... That distinction, those two different kinds when I started looking at religious life um, and I always thought that I was going to be active. I thought I was going to be out teaching and then I was teaching, I realized I didn't like it. <laughs> and then it was kind of through that that eventually I realized, oh, crap, I I want to be a contemplative. I want to be a cloistered nun. This is this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I was shocked <laughs> to discover that but I, I I don't think I should have been in. How the does
0: end. how does one discover that? How did you discover that? How do you know that?
1: Um yeah, uh I have always had an attraction to consecrated life. Um I've always been uh like I I grew up around uh, religious sisters essentially and so it always kind of been there and in the back of my mind as like an option um and really what interested me about them is that they were just so happy um and they just seemed really full of life um and like my child logic was like I want to be happy and have fun these people are happy and having a lot of fun I want to be I want to be one of those <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I, I started praying and I started asking God to call me to that way of life. And then the order in particular that I was attracted to, um, I just never felt like an interior like push or like movement to that. Um, So then I stopped uh, looking in that direction um, and just did other things until kind of eventually in my prayer life, that desire came back again. Um, this was kind of halfway through college, like, okay, I need to, to look back into this, like, latent desire that was there. Um, and I, I think really, for me, the desire that was there the whole time was uh, a desire to be totally dedicated to God, just completely. Um, the moments where I felt most alive and most myself were always in prayer, um, and especially, uh, like, prayer and community, like, with other people. Um, which is what a lot of the life of a nun is doing. Um, yeah. And then the move to, to contemplative life. Um, yeah. I, I, I was uh, talking to someone else actually on the phone um, who was about to enter a cloister and I was asking her why it was that she uh didn't join an active order and join a contemplative order instead. Um, And it was basically that she was, she just needed more time in prayer. Uh, And it was in that conversation, like I could almost feel something in my heart change. Uh, And I realized I deeply, deeply wanted that. I just wanted more prayer, more intimacy with God in my life. Um, And so then, then I knew that I had to start looking start doing something about that like I mean really I think discerning that is is just paying attention to your desires that was a long way to say that <laughs> you just pay attention to your desires that's it <laughs> I found that that was there and so then I started uh, visiting different cloisters
0: my throat dried out really intensely yeah I was listening to um Pints with acquaintances he's a YouTube sensation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And he has had, I've only watched one. No, no. I watched a couple of his Byzantine um, interviews Mm -hmm. and I think both of the men that he interviewed went celibate. Um, But I think one actually got married and I don't think Catholics get divorced. So I'm pretty sure he's not celibate. I don't think that, I don't know. I didn't get to the end of that one. But one Isn't definitely
1: priests can be married, yeah.
0: Yeah. But they can also not yeah. be married. Well one sure. one mm-hmm. the one the one that I listened to the whole thing is I can't remember the dude's name. Father's name. Um He he just described a process of uh wanting to devote himself entirely to God. Mm-hmm. And that uh, he just he did the calculus and he got his signs and he went that way it seems like a one-way street i know there's the sound of music and that was like another way that you can go like if you're fleeing the nazis then it's okay to get hitched i guess you know like there's some <laughs> extenuating circumstances but i mean maybe you don't look at it like sacrifice as a sacrifice but uh it is it's a big calculus
1: yeah yeah i i'm aware and it's but... a
0: serious commitment too yeah so I think that's why it's so boggling to so many normies.
1: Yeah, I, I forget how weird it sounds to other people because <laughs> it just it feels so normal to me. Um hmm. Yeah, I mean, it just it's been a part of my life for so long. Like you think about these things so for so long, you're like, ah, oh, like of oh. course these are the kinds of things in everyone else's heads. No, they're not. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, like, the payoff is, is, is worth it, uh, which is I, everyone, everyone wants to experience themselves being fully alive. And I think you can only really do that well if you are being attentive to your desires and not, like, muffling that. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a Catholic perspective, like, you do, you do stifle your desires, actually, uh, in a life of sin. Like you just, you, you make the, the, the truest and deeper things about you harder to hear. I think all of us really, like, we know what that means. Um, Like experiences of just like trying to uh, like avoid the real things that are inside of us by like distracting ourselves. I don't know, like food or sex or whatever. Hmm. Um, And so if you're being uh, attentive and just, kind of paying attention to the signs, taking one step at a time, because that's usually how God works. He doesn't lay out your life plan. <laughs> he just says, all right, next hmm. one. Um hmm. yeah, that's that's kind of the path to becoming fully alive. And so that's basically what I've done. Like like uh okay, this seems to be the next direction. So I take this step and then like I test it. Like it like, is it, is it really, like, bringing out the fullness of who I am? And I can feel that. I know that. Hmm. Um, and what I have discovered is that the things that make me most myself and most alive is what nuns do all day. <laughs> uh, so, like, prayer, community, um, communal prayer, singing, uh, study, um, the order that I'm looking into, they really care about study, Um, so like studying theology, studying philosophy, I mean, that's really how I've come to know and love God deeper. I know not everyone is like really like moved by like, I don't know, academics in the same way, but that's just, that's been my route to God. And so I, it's been obvious that I'm really supposed to lean into that.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, so one thing that, uh, is a mystery to me is that if you're studying, are you, are you product oriented or is that not something that you're oriented to do you have like a project that you're working on maybe that's just me i'm just project oriented i'm creating something i'm doing this for something this is for something um is it is it uh is that salient to you or is it something um you're just in communion or conversation with this body of work and these conversations
1: you mean like right now or like the orientation of the monastery so. I guess
0: right now, uh, one of our earlier questions and I like our conversation because we're just kind of really kind of going through these things. Uh, one of the things is like, how did you get into this gender thing? How did you, yeah. were you, is that part of your work? I, I just think of people as working on something at some point. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, is that like, you can write a book or, you know, are you can write a book, are you going to do a podcast from your nunnery.
1: <laughs> uh. No, cast. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that.
0: <laughs> no, no, I'm probably violating uh, some sort of law.
1: <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't work for this monastery. Maybe for others. Um, yeah, I mean, I the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing at um, New Polity is, I mean, it's kind of like an in between step. I'm not in the cloister yet, um, and it's it's kind of like dating. Like you just have to go and like try it out, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. see if it fits because you might be called to religious life, but it it might not be the community for you. So it, it might take a while for me to find the right spot, which is fine. Um, but in the meantime, I don't know if there, it, it seemed like there was something else that I was supposed to be working on as I'm kind of moving my way towards the monastery, trying to find my place there and it just kind of happened that the gender stuff occurred i mean i was just i was interested in butler i reached out to mark I was like how can i help you like I, I i can help research stuff for your dissertation by the time i got here he had pretty much finished it so i was like well i don't know what i'm doing here anymore <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and then he's gonna be yeah like turning turning that into a book as well as like other things so I'm assisting in that. I'm also helping um, Dr. Andrew Willard Jones in a book as well. So that's, mm-hmm. that's really been my main project actually, even though people just see me talking about gender. About? It's on Catholic social teaching. Um,
0: oh, you guys are commies then. I was wondering. <laughs>
1: uh, It's, I'm really excited about it. It's
0: what is Catholic uh, social teaching,
1: um, Catholic social teaching. um uh it's uh it's kind of like uh, human anthropology um like what is true about the human person and because the human person is a social being what does that mean so it's it's essentially political theology that's what it is hmm. um which i think to a lot of people sounds like an oxymoron <laughs> um but if you think about politics in a broad sense um it's politics is really just about ordering power um, and ordering power for the common good and that's really the heart of catholic social teaching that power all power ought to be used for the common good it ought the powerful ought to use their power to raise up the weak and um, for for the church the family is really the paradigm of that and so Mm -hmm. you look at how power is being manifested in a family like you have parents who kind of have like total power over their children Um, But unlike the postmodern kind of cynical take that like power tends to be just like violent imposition, um, you can flip that and say, okay, yeah, there's the possibility of violent imposition. But if there wasn't this kind of giant power differential, then there wouldn't be the possibility of gift and fathers and mothers raising up their their children. And so it's essentially just looking at basic political principles without telling people exactly what they have to do. Um, Hmm. So like you can use those basic principles, like all power ought to be used, like to raise up the weak, like in a family, but it doesn't mean that all families are going to live that exactly the same. Hmm. Um, So it's, it's kind of like a a hands-off political theology. Like here's the basic principles. Um, It's, it's almost like teaching someone how to be an architect. Like here's just how nature works. Here's Physics. Now go do something
0: beautiful. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about power is that we kind of are blind to it having a content. It can have a content. Power can be love. The yeah. content of power can be love and mm-hmm. it can be the content of power can be love not only within the family, but within the city state. It can mm-hmm. be that way. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, it's really difficult for it to be that way. Um, Definitely. Almost impossible sometimes, (laughs) but um, there's that possibility. So even just shedding light on that, you know, I'm just trying to extrapolate what could be a hands-off political theory. Say, well, you could, this is how it works. It could work like this. There could be content in there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think what the church is asserting is that um, like that, that is like the true force of power. Um, that the true force of power is love um and this is kind of like the fundamental structure and that um when we see power being manifested as like impositions of of violence um not as in like uh is in violence in the sense of like kind of destroying something and and keeping it from um, Flourishing, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, hampering its possibility in some way. Well, for your own gain, I guess.
1: Yeah, I guess I'm kind of stumbling around. Uh, but I think it's, I think the point is that the fundamental orientation of power and the fundamental orientation of the human person is love. Um, and so if that's kind of our baseline assumption, that's going to change the way that you interact with other people. Yeah. Um, So that's kind of a a part of it so the book that we're working on is uh taking his his class on catholic social teaching and turning it into a book and so it's just going through like basic principles and how the church understands those things so like what is power there's a whole chapter on power um what is hierarchy because like human beings find themselves just in, in hierarchy some people have more power than other people is this always a bad thing should we always be cynical about it? Should we arrange our political structures assuming cynicism, that power is only manifested in domination and violence?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolute like power corrupts absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that an absolute statement or not?
1: <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's that's kind of what the 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 book is about, and that's the project that I'm working on while I'm trying to get to the monastery.
0: Yeah, on your way to the monastery. Yeah. The, uh, I, you do your own calculus for it. I don't mean to be judgmental at all. I'm just trying to like find the right questions for this. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you abstract yourself from the world and cloister yourself off, are you not, not fulfilling your destiny as a woman? I'm sorry to go here. It's just a question
1: for it. of having a, <laughs> of
0: having children. If the, if that is a sacred part of being a woman, having a family, engaging with a man over, over your lifespan. Like you're, you're, there's something else that you're being called to do. Like that's a huge sacrifice or absence. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's a calculus in that or, and I know your tradition is thousands, hundreds, centuries old, depending on the cloister and the tradition, but still Mm -hmm. I'm sure that they've, they've figured out how to square that circle, but it seems like a big circle to square.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um hmm. uh I think um what uh like motherhood, like physical motherhood does is um like I think that's uh a manifestation of what it means to be a woman fundamentally. Um But I think that that orientation is really beyond just the physical um, and is a movement into the spiritual. Um, So so what I mean is uh, a nun is a mother. Um, She does what mothers do, um, except she receives from God, who is her spouse. Um, she receives his word, kind of again imitating mary um, and in receiving that word, she's bearing fruit uh in her in her prayer um and in her pursuit of God and her pursuit of virtue, and that just kind of naturally bears fruit um, and spiritual blessings on other people does that does that kind of make sense? like it's the same pattern like you're doing the same thing but in a different way. Um, I know that's something that Mark and I kind of talked a little bit on the podcast um, that in the, in the Catholic tradition, uh, I think, I think there's a more full vision of femininity because of the understanding that there is a place for celibate nuns in the church um, because when if you're if your only possibility of vocation is uh being a wife and mother then it kind of it puts a cap on like your meaning as a as a woman like it's there's a tendency to just limit yourself to like well like i'm just here to like have children and raise babies and i think that's kind of what feminism was rebelling against right like i'm like this kind of intrinsic uh like notion that I'm made for something more than that. And that my meaning transcends um, just having babies. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are in like a world in which there are like celibate nuns um, and they're kind of actually uh, from the church's perspective, like the highest expression of femininity, because they're almost like the, the, mm-hmm. Uh, like the most embodied symbol of what union with God is going to be like, um, then uh, that, that kind of changes like your orientation of how you you view yourself. Like automatically you have a world that's opened above you instead of just like closed to like just like the physical realm.
0: I wonder if that is um, subconsciously, or unconsciously mirrored in uh, academic feminism as the, they, they are the nuns. Uh, those academic feminists are... <laughs> right. Basically, I, the, a lot of the rhetoric is kind of anti-male and uh, even separatist. It, it, it's mm-hmm. like the cloistered. It's just like there's an added <laughs> bit of lesbianism in there that, you know, whatever like... You know, it's just like, if, that, if that's the paragon of, of the feminist, that's the nunnery of the academy, that's the nunnery in, in, in a way... It just, yeah. just seems there might be some sort of parallel.
1: I mean, like I can see the overlap, um, but it's also, it seems to me, a more sterile orientation. Like there's okay, no so, fundamental it, yeah. like orientation towards life. Like what I am meant to do is to receive and bear fruit.
0: Okay. Um Yeah.
1: And, yeah, because i've think-
0: seen there's a there's a I, this is co- a controversial uh observation but a lot of the problems in woke college spheres you see a lot of women without children turning causing these different identity groups to be their children right like kind of the cat mm-hmm. mom who like litch- yeah. latches on to black lives matter or like find something to mm-hmm. thing coddle um it, it, it's kind of there, there's a manifestation of motherhood and motherliness that just totally. doesn't seem to be fully recognized in, in its full glory to serve something greater, and so there's something kind of devouring motherish about it or coddling about it that actually is kind of corrupting to that which it con- condescends to.
1: Yeah, I I think that's right because I, I think there is that uh, natural orientation in all women. Um, And it's going to manifest in some capacity uh, or if it's not kind of causing like an interior dissonance, if that makes sense. Um, But yeah, I think you're right in pointing out, yep, it is kind of manifesting in these kind of weird areas. I mean, like you, you see it too, with kind of like, it's the same idea of like, we have like these intrinsic kind of religious movements like a movement towards ritual and how we're seeing kind of ritual come back into the public sphere, like, um, like public apologies. I mean, like that, that is like a public ritual. It's like a public confession, like all the things that the Catholic church have been doing. It's like, now Let alone <laughs> all the identities,
0: you, you guys. Uh, we, uh, we've, uh, I've been thinking about this for a long time now. It's like we're, we're reinventing the Catholic calendar, but it's all about identity now.
1: Oh my gosh, I know.
0: <laughs> we have oh, Pride it's so month. weird. it's, like, uh,
1: it's a yeah. whole month too. <laughs>
0: it keeps on going and, going and going and going.
1: Yeah, and there's like parades and yeah, it's just the return of, of ritual. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think I think that's that's totally true about femininity. Um, and I wonder if that has to do with, uh, a misunderstanding of, of power, like just reducing power to the way that we see it, um, typically manifested in men, because if you don't think that, um, the power of like love or perhaps intimate influence is like a real and valuable kind of power, um, if that's if that's the way that you are able to, I don't know, I don't know. If, if that's the kind of power that you have, but you have been told that like that's not that's not real power, and then you've like rejected it, you're still going to be kind of reaching for that, but in other ways.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and I, I do think that uh, you know being being a nun um, or just the fact that there are nuns in general does kind of help to to break that paradigm of seeing um like external power as being like the ultimate uh i don't know like aspiration the of power yeah 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 um so one of the things Uh, kind of like a phrase that's tossed around in religious circles is the active is oriented towards the contemplative. Like the purpose of your life is to know and love God. And so we put a lot of emphasis on all the external things, um, but really if they're being properly ordered, ordered, they should be ordering you to the contemplative, to the place where you can know and love God uh, intimately. Um, like the, the final kind of orientation of, of human existence, I think, um, is not to like complete a project, but to know a person. And I think the bridal imagery, um, really helps you to, I don't know, re reorient the way that you're seeing that. I know I'm just kind of like, uh, no, 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 things, no, no, that was I don't a good know one how else to explain,
0: <laughs> you know, you, you did, a. Uh... You did a judo move on me. What did you just say? The ultimate orientation of person is not to complete a project, but to know a person. person. Yeah, is that is that a Maria original?
1: Uh, Yes, it is.
0: (laughs) Good one. Good one. You hit home there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's why I I love I love I love telling people that I want to be a nun and just watching the confusion on their faces. um because i i know it's i know it's so confusing and it's just kind of fun to watch um hmm. yeah like people try to, to to process that because i think we are so focused on being useful being active doing something creating some output like the thing that you're asked is like like well like how do you want to make a difference in the world someday and i, I think that's really admirable um but i think what woman reveals in general and especially i mean like uh, the The nun is just like like a symbol like turned up to the nth degree. Like it's making it really, really clear um that the ultimate orientation is is really not to be just like this useful person who's mm. doing all these great things. I mean, we all know that those things will be forgotten anyway. Um, mm. that they don't last. So uh, I, I think that's kind of the the church's response to. Um, feminism um, because I think that uh, female power is is kind of a hidden power. Like the power of love and the power of influence, um, like intimate influence, uh, is in fact uh, more powerful and more long-lasting I think than violent power because like you are able to enter into like the heart and the mind of the person Like conversion, like real conversion is going to make lasting changes in a way that an external law is not going to do. I mean, like anyone knows this when you're disciplining children. Like what's really going to make a difference is when like the kid finally gets it and not just like when he knows that he's going to be sent to his room. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're really convinced that like that uh, kind of like hidden power, like is a real power. And then the church is saying like, and, and this is the ultimate orientation, uh, and this is kind of the movement of humanity, and even like all these external forms of power, um, all of these are just ought to be ordered towards intimate union with God, um, and so it kind of makes sense that Mary, or the feminine, is lifted to the top, <laughs> uh, and, and the church is kind of this, yeah, this, this ultimate model of what we should be attaining to. And I think that's, that's really liberating um, for women. So
0: It's a mystery.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hmm. So what's next on your plate then? I guess you're going to trump up the mountain in September. Do you have uh, plans? Are you guys doing anything? Are you guys taking a break at New Polity uh, for the summer?
1: No, so, uh right now I'm just working on uh, the book with Andrew. Uh I'll be taking a break in September, but nobody else will be. Uh and then I'll come back and Mark and I will do something. We'll see what ends up happening. So we'll we'll be we'll be gearing up for another season of the podcast. Um and it's gonna kind of move more into the second half of his dissertation which is looking at the biblical narrative um so i guess kind of what what we were doing was looking at okay what is judith butler saying what is queer theory saying um and uh then just kind of completely like switching and just looking at the narrative being offered by uh offered by the bible like what is what does revelation have to say about the orientation and meaning of male and female? And hmm. I'm really excited about that. I think it'll be really interesting.
0: There's one thing that he said, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was in the the last, I think it was the last episode. He said something about the, uh, he was very assertive and, and you called him out on that or something like that. He used this, he used some <laughs> very particular tone of voice about that. The gender confusion is actually the rule, not the, uh, not the exception. Something along the effect that we've always been having a hard time with figuring out gender and that that is actually something that we have to continually be mm-hmm. rediscovering or, or reifying. Um, because if we don't, then it's just going to go into all these other different things like the, the, the pressures, the, the human imagination is, even though we can't touch it, it's like the light that, that burns us. Gender is just so powerful.
1: It's so powerful (laughs) to us.
0: I don't care. I'm really trying to like, even say the gender critical feminists. I'm like, no, you you can criticize all these different forms, but until you give something positive, you're just going to be, you're going to have the, the queer theorists on the left of you and the conservatives on the right of you. And you're, you're going to always be seeding ground to them and just being anti until you give, give me something positive. What is a woman, What is a woman?
1: Yeah. I, I think there's kind of two, two, two levels of it. Um, there is kind of like the biological like recognition, and I think the confusion about that is a generally new thing.
0: Yeah, because um, the tech <laughs> and the okay. internet, how much time we spend in this. Yeah,
1: one. <laughs> uh, but I think. I I I think that the the question that everyone is really grappling with is like, what what well what does this mean like no one I mean if it really just came down to biology nobody would care like sure you can put whatever name that you want on this appendage whatever fine mm-hmm. um, yeah but what does that mean that yeah that is that is a question I feel like. <laughs> I mean that's that's kind of what we're gonna try to explore a little bit more. Like, what is uh, scripture? What is revelation revealing about what it means to be male and female? And I mean, it's not something that can be exhausted. Um, I mean, I, I kind of feel like I'm just swimming in a lot (laughs) and in some ways, like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just have, I have lots of questions and I'm Mm -hmm. figuring this out at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like symbolism in general is just kind of like that. Cause I I think that like the meaning of man and woman is deeply symbolic. Um, And yeah, like you can, you know, that it has like a meaning and an orientation, um, but because there's Overlap and because it can be manifested in just like an infinite amount of ways,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. it can be overwhelming.
0: I one one of my aphorisms about it is that uh, sex is sex is universal, gender is local. Mm. The gender gender is uh, and and it's taken from Illich. Uh, yeah, I've been a little bit. It's like you're going to see these local manifestations that are going to be. It's a it's a The problem with gender identity is that it tries to make concrete that which is relative, or relational, rather. Mm -hmm. And so what you're going to see is that gender is actually a negotiation towards intimacy that's not going to be able to be affected through a uh, a, a biography on the internet. Your, Your gender identity is a completely it's not like you're you're just this actor on a stage that is proclaiming an identity that's gendered it's that your gender is the movement of men and men and women and women and men and women figuring mm-hmm. out how to how to discover themselves so yeah, so yeah. the weird perversion of making gender I- identity the uh, expression of your authentic self your authentic self is not some atom that's proclaiming itself like a beacon. It's, it's discovered in this dance of relationship and gender is the field through which uh, we become de-anonymized. It's the de-anonymizing force in us.
1: Yeah. I think it's, I think it's just a lot less fun. Like I, like I, I'm starting to see more and more that limits and creativity are just intertwined. Like you can't have creativity Mm. without limits. I mean everyone knows if you're given an essay prompt of like talk about whatever yeah. you want that is the most horrible thing you can do to a person. Well yeah, <laughs> like, but like but, how but, do you begin?
0: I, I, I hear that but at the same time gender identity tries to like there, there, there's these really stupid graphics um, like where they say that there's where's your gender identity here's Barbie here's GI Joe and then there's 12 different shapes between it it's trying to give order in the wrong way there are things yeah. that are not correct rules it's not correct grammar
1: yes yeah so I do yeah, believe totally. in the order
0: but like there's there's misordering and there's misinterpretation and there's stupid or lowly interpretation that's going mm-hmm. on that that um, is going by the name of gender ideology or gender. And that's not the gender that I'm trying to reify. There's something else that I'm trying to get to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There has to be uh, like humility before the given, like of your own body, I think is the starting place. Hmm. Um, And it's the thing that we're rejecting right now that like my, my own body is giving me uh, it's like revealing to me my own limits so that I can be myself and have an identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of going back to the image of, of like architecture, like you have to submit yourself to the laws of physics in order to actually create something beautiful in order to have an expression of uh, art, I guess. Um, and I think that's the same for men and women. Like it's an attentiveness to like, what is the meaning that comes from my body Um, what is the natural orientation that I can learn from my given reality. Like my, my natural body is like telling me that like uh, receptivity and fruitfulness is kind of essential to like what I am as a, as a person. And I think uh, if you're being attentive to that spiritually, you'll find that echo also there. And that, that is going to, change the way that you approach other people. Um, And I think that's kind of the baseline that gives shape to the meaning.
0: It's poetry.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Which is why I'm so lost.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Put a, put a bird on it and call it art. I I guess you're right. Uh, Just let it be what it is. Maria, it's been wonderful. We should finish the recording. I don't know how yeah. long it is because I'm out of town. My setup's completely weird right now. Mm-hmm. So thank you for your time. Thanks for um, carving out a place in this weird studio closet. Kind of
1: yeah, body, kind of <laughs> it's really ugly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was wonderful to speak with you, and uh, hope we can speak again.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me on. I've I've been looking around at some of your other videos, and I just I really love the content i just think it's awesome and i like the way that yeah you interact with all the guests and um yeah you just always struck me as being really sincere and i feel like that's a rare thing hmm. so thank you
0: i'm gonna end the recording can i ask you uh wait stop and then our right, how